Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 95, A Feast for Crows, Jamie 7, featuring our good friend Kristen. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, today, once more, we have another, another one of your hosts, again. It's <laughs> Kristen, whom some of you may know as KRT on some other platforms, who's joining us as one of the moderators of the A Song of Ice and Fire group, but also a couple of other things. I'll let Kristen talk about it, but she's a big-time Jamie fan. <laughs> like, the Jamie fan. <laughs> Hi! This is Kristen Trito, for those of you who do know me and go, how do you say your last name? I am one of the moderators, admins at the big Facebook group that's called A Song of Ice and Fire. And I've been doing, I've been doing that a long time, maybe five or six years, something like that. It was sort of an accident where, um, (laughs) as most things in, in a fandom are, where I showed up. And I I lurked for a really long time, and the group wasn't private then, so I didn't say anything because I don't know if, like in those days, Facebook was one of those things where, like, if you posted in a public group, anybody on your timeline could see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I didn't want, like, you know, my cousin to be like, what is she talking about? So I just lurked for a really long time, and then... The group went private, and then I started talking, and when they realized that <laughs> I wasn't going to shut up, they made me an admin. At that point in time, the group was like 10,000 people, and I checked this morning, and it's about 66,000 people who are in the group. It's a lot of people. It, yeah, it is. It, the, the most it's ever been was like a little over 70,000, like when the show was crazy town popular and airing and people were coming to talk about the show but obviously you know things calm down people lose interest so the group is currently shrinking a little bit and i think that's understandable given that we don't have a book yeah and you know i do not envy your task as a moderator during that game of thrones season spike that had to have been an intense time an intense time yeah, it can be, and especially if people, I we, we have a very high expectation of how we think people should behave in the group, and so, you know, when people don't want to do that, we have a, I think maybe even a heavy-handed reputation, but the idea is to make it a, a place where people can feel like it's a safe place to be and can talk about stuff without being harassed like they are in other parts of the internet, so I do like that aspect of it, and it's a good community. We've worked really hard at it. And it's probably, like I said to you earlier, but no one heard it, but you two, I probably wouldn't <laughs> be on Facebook anymore if it weren't for this group. So a redeeming factor It's a redeeming fact. All my friends in the fandom I've made through that group, essentially, or an offshoot of that group. I, that's probably how I met Jeff and I met Eliana through Jeff and Balticon. Yeah, that was a fateful year. Yes. Back when the show that these books are based off of was airing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it was a good time. And it was really lovely to meet all these people that I, you know, have, I feel, you feel like you know them, but to meet them in person, that kind of thing. So unfortunately, I haven't had an opportunity to meet Chloe in person yet, but that'll change. 
You know, I think it, I'm saving the best for last. You know, KRT, I'm just, I'm here. <laughs> when we meet, it's going to be what? It's going to be Worldcon, probably. Yes. It's going to be me probably. and you at Worldcon 21. that happens. Yes. It's going to happen, yeah. Eliana. It's going to happen. I mean, I really hope so. <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> it I have to happen. for everyone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> me too. I have lots of beers to drink. I have uh, lots of bullshitting to do, lots of shit to talk. You know, I feel like it has to happen. I feel that way, too. It's definitely um, a highlight. Maybe we'll even have a book. What if we have a book? What if we have a book? (laughs) Sometimes it's nice to hope. Okay, I know everybody is really mad all the time about, like, Jon Snow's real name or if George is going to finish his book or whatever they're mad about right now. But... I personally sometimes sit there and I'm like, oh, I think this book is going to be just delightful when it happens. So sometimes I just think that's a nice thought to have, you know, like, what if we have a book? We could have a book and it could be great. Yep. I I still yep. have hope. You know, I know a lot of people don't or, you know, think it'll never happen, but I, I have hope and I, I know it'll be good. I pick up, you know, I hadn't read Feast in a little while and I picked it up and I was like, this book is so good. I know. I, you know, it's my favorite. Yeah, Feast is super good. It's my favorite too. Yeah, it's a, it's so detailed, and it's just like all this plotting, which we're about to get into. There's so much plotting that's kind of slowly popping off. Yes, and I, you know, I think it gets a bad rap because people didn't like it after Storm or whatever. But mm-hmm. you got to pick up the pieces after Storm. Come on now. Yes. Well. We're really excited to have you on, Kristen. You are, as we said, the Jamie fan. Uh, I know you don't do much on your Tumblr anymore, but I know you did have some good Jamie meta at a few points on your Tumblr. If you have any you want people to come see, (laughs) totally let us know and we'll link them below. But tell us about your affinity and love for Jamie in the meantime. That's kind of, it's kind of funny because I've told this story before because, you know, everybody talks about maybe the first time they read the book or or maybe even the first time they watched the show where the moment you know they're hooked the moment that Jamie pushes Bran out the window and that's like they didn't realize what was happening or like that was the moment that hooked them and for me I was like I have to know why this person did this like I was fascinated by Jamie from that moment forward. Why would he do that? Who is this character? And I, I also joke that I like my uh, fictional men, dark and damaged. And so <laughs> I was just hooked from that moment to like, why would he do this? When are we going to find out? And of course, when he be, you know, when he becomes a point of view character. And then I was like, I knew, I knew he was better than he was letting on. I knew Ned was <laughs> totally right. Uh, yeah, it was just a fictional love affair with a character from the get-go. And I'm fascinated by him. And of course, I love Brienne. And I will make no, I'll make no apologies that I'm a Brammy shipper. And I don't think they're going to go off into the sunset together. But I enjoyed that the relationship there and what she triggers in him and all that kind of stuff. So, And I mean, of course, Jamie's one of the... Most interesting characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think that's something we've been saying from the beginning, especially in terms of how he's he is really pivotal to everything, and like you said, wanting to know what's going on in his head. And 
sadly, though, we are coming towards the end of the existing Jamie chapters. As we were discussing, maybe one day we'll get another book and therefore more Jamie cha chapters and finally figure out what happens between him and the Lady Stoneheart showdown. But next week, we'll be discussing all that with our wrap-up of Jamie's storyline in Feast, as well as covering the single A Dance with Dragons Jamie chapter, and then wrapping up on his dance storyline, which is just that one chapter. <laughs> but, Eliana, what are we going to do after that? We will also be answering the backlog of questions and tweets that we keep saying we're going to get to. <laughs> Uh, next week is like the Jamie week, is what we're saying. Yeah, we're, we're fulfilling those oaths. Next week is the Oath Keeper episode. Oh my god. Uh, well, after Jamie ends, I know we have a lot of people sitting around asking, who could it be? Who could the girls be covering next? <sighs> we are covering Aries Oakheart. Jon Snow. Oh my god. <laughs> we're going back to Jon Snow shots. We are Benjamin buttoning this whole goddamn operation and we're going back to Ned. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, Ned would be a really interesting POV to revisit after Jamie, but regardless. Yes, regardless, we are going to read Aerys Oakheart's chapter. Yes, he is a different white knight directly involved in the care of Jamie's daughter, Marcella, actually. And uh, only one chapter, so we will have another POV announcement yet to come. And maybe another, mayhaps another. Yes, who knows? One after another. <laughs> the winds of winter. Announced. Oh my god. One it could come another. out. Um, but yeah, so I I think a lot of you can probably see how we decided to get to Ari's Oakheart after Jamie. Thought it'd be a fun, fun way to break up all the longer POVs that we've been doing the past few months and weeks and Talk about another white knight who's like, mm, but what if I broke my vows for sex? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gets anyone hotter than makes them want to break their vows more than women who want to become queen. But actually, I can see it. I see the appeal. Yeah, and I'm excited to get back to some Dorn, right? Just yeah. a little bit. Uh, it's been a hot minute. We haven't been back to Dorn in a second. And I don't know, some of the politics are good, some of the backstory. And I think especially after reading Jamie all the way through, there's a lot of Dorn politics that are very interesting from Aerys Oakhart's lens, right? As a mm -hmm. Kingsguard, and of course, as someone from the Reach who doesn't really have uh, probably the best feeling about being in Dorn because he's racist. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't think he is. He's like, hmm, my girlfriend's, <laughs> girlfriend's Dornish. <laughs> it's okay. Jamie's girlfriend is his sister. Yeah. But before we get into all that, we have this Jamie chapter that we gotta get through, and of course, our lightning round prior to that. Starting off with, yeah, Jamie's sister, Cersei 9. Cersei aspires to get what she wants, at all costs. Even if it means banging a kettle black. <laughs> the princess in the tower, Ariane is punished for conspiring against her father's wishes, but has a huge reveal toward chapter's end. Of vengeance, justice, fire, and blood. We have Elaine too. Lord Baelish also gives a huge reveal. His plans for Elaine Stone to transform back into Sansa and become the queen in the north. Or maybe elsewhere? Brienne 8. Brienne faces judgment from Mother Merciless and screams out a word to save her and her companion's life. Jamie's dick! 
Just kidding. It's sword. But also, deep down inside. Whoa. <laughs> I gotta rethink. I gotta rethink. My, I gotta rethink my wording. I gotta rethink it. Sorry, but uh, also somewhere in her heart, Jamie Stick. <laughs> somewhere in some sort of depth. <laughs> Whether shallow or deep. <laughs> this is why Aliana doesn't read these before. <laughs> You get gems like this. That brings us to Cersei 10. Cersei's scheming collapses in on her as she sends a raven for her one last hope. Come at once. Help me. Save me. I need you as I've never needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Thrice? All those I love you. Jamie 7, overview. Put this in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Burn it up! Burn it up! Yeah, that's what Emmett Frey feels like right now because he is angry. Spittle is flying off of his face. He's yelling about taking off someone's head. He's like, "I, I own this place now by the king's own decree." And Jenna's like, "Yes, Emmett. Everyone knows. <laughs> Jamie knows. All right. The king also knows about the decree. So does Edmure. So do the stable boys because you won't shut the fuck up about it." And I just feel like Emmett Frey in this opening has that big like energy of. The thing that Tywin was condemning, right? Like, of any man who must say I am king, and it's very much uh, damning for Emin here. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in Cersei 10, right before this, uh, when she's in the Sept of Baelor, dealing with the High Septon, she has so many moments that speak right into this. She has the moment where he says, you spoke with the queen, and she thinks she resisted the urge to say, I am the queen. She follows the High Septon later. Cersei could feel the eyes of the Seven staring at her, eyes of Jade and Malachite and Onyx, and a sudden shiver of fear went through her, cold as ice. I am the queen, she told herself, Lord Tywin's daughter. Reluctantly, she followed. And of course, later when she's finally captured by the Faith, she finally shouts, I am the queen, I'll have your heads for this, I'll have all your heads, let me pass. So definitely some parallels with the pages we just ended of just a few pages ago. He's yelling, of course, because the Blackfish escaped River Run when Edmure surrendered his castle. So Edmure, of course, is using the loophole that he was asked to surrender the castle, not the Blackfish. Jamie is unamused. Shocker. And I, <laughs> I, when I was reading this chapter to get ready, I was really struck by this. And I, I had not, I, I'd either forgotten it or, but it hit me, you know, Lord Emmon rubbed his mouth. His hand came away red and slimy from the sour leaf. To be sure, River Run is mine, and no man shall ever take it from me. Um, mm. I, I just, that hit me. I hadn't considered it before. Yeah, Eliana and I were actually speaking about this offline, and I didn't really think about the no man shall take the, ever take it from me either, but it really feels like crazy Red Wedding 2.0 foreshadowing in general. And I think it's got to be led either by Arya or if we're talking Lady Stoneheart. Either way, there's foreshadowing for both but every single thing about this is like brotherhood without banners is totally in on this there's spies in every corner jamie doesn't even realize it and there's this line in the brienne chapter right before this death and guest right muttered long jane heddle they don't mean so much as they used to neither one and it kind of makes me think that lordship doesn't mean the same either they're about to find out right like that paper shield as Ned's was torn in half, is about to be torn in half. Yeah, definitely. I think the the Lady Stoneheart thing is one 
big contender. And uh, yeah, same as you, Kristen, this stood out to me, especially, you know, there's been discussion of similar things said about Gregor Clegane, right? Or sorry, I'm sorry, Sir Robert Strong. <laughs> and how um, I think a similar idea, right? Of no, no man shall like, no living man can like, take him or something like that. And of course, it feels like, in a way, similar to the I am no man scene, right? In Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah. 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 And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if like, Lady Stoneheart's a strong contender. Of course, I think Sansa Stark is one too, uh, having that claim on the Tully name. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. for Endgame, absolutely. You know, I'm a strong yeller when it comes to saying, I think Sansa might control more than the North. We'll see. I guess it. we, we, need, we need another book, man. That's <laughs> really what we need. <laughs> so no one's been able to find the blackfish. Admir says, well, fish swim, even black ones. I love that line. Jamie, who has been really hand-heavy lately, thinks about smacking him across the face like every other man who's gotten in his way. He threatens him with the obliettes beneath Casterly Rock. Edmure says Jamie gave him his word he'd be treated per his rank, and Jamie's like, yeah, many noble guys have died down there before. He did swim, said Edmure solemnly. He had the same blue eyes as the sister Catelyn, and Jamie saw the same loathing there that he'd once seen in hers. We raised the portcullis on the water gate, not all the way, just three feet or so, enough to have a gap under the water, though the gate still appeared to be closed. My uncle is a strong swimmer. After dark, he pulled himself beneath the spikes. My favorite thing when going through this paragraph is that, of course, Jamie saw the same eye color in Edmure. Like, why are you looking at sibling eye color, Jamie? What's going on there? <laughs> uh, no, but joking aside... There is something really interesting about Edmir and Emin and their presence in this chapter. Edmir specifically is dressed up really lordly, and we get this passage that he still looks more lordly than Emin, that he's wearing a doublet of red wool with a leaping trout on his chest. His boots are black, his breech is blue, his auburn hair washed and barbered, his red beard neatly trimmed. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Sansa choosing the Tully dress in the Eerie, but of course being bade to change out of it because she looked a little too Tully. But comparing this to Cersei's last chapter and what she was wearing beneath the Iron Throne before she took off to Baylor, to Baylor's Sept, Cersei sat beneath the Iron Throne, clad in green silk and golden lace. Tell his High Holiness we are vexed with him. He presumes too much. Emeralds glittered on her fingers and in her golden hair. The eyes of court and city were upon her, and she meant for them to see Lord Tywin's daughter. By the time this mummer's farce was done, they would know they had but one true queen. So there's a really strong focus in both of these chapters on being lordly in color, and Edmure is set up as the person they need to be in control, but the Lannister phrase would obviously be puppet ruling. With Emin, with his fake shield, they just want him to shut up for a while, obviously, right? Like, it works in comparison to his prattling about being the lord when the blackfish escaped overnight. Who was really the lord last night, Emin Frey? Cersei, of course, thinks she's in charge, as we know throughout these chapters. And in Cersei 10, I mean, I'd argue she found out the truth that she is also kind of a puppet by the chapter's end in her own chains. Definitely. You called out Jamie looking at Edmure's eyes and I th that's something that stuck out to me again 
you know, especially as we keep talking about how, yeah, they're back at Riverrun again. And it reminds me of, like, once more, the guilt he feels towards his vows to Catelyn, which, of course, we're, like, reminded of two chapters before in Brienne's last chapter. And seeing that, you know, in Edmure, again, those power positions are reversed. I also kind of love that, as you said, Jamie thinks that Edmure looks much more like a lord. And I, I'm glad that Edmure was like, what if I wore my Tully colors? That would be fun. Good statement. But there's all these things in the story of, like, who looks like they should be a lord or a king and or holding power and then how they then hold themselves. And I think it's noteworthy to me that Jamie makes that observation, considering that, like, of all the people, right, we start off this entire story with John looking at Jamie and being like, that's what a king should look like. And so so it's remarkable to me that Jamie thinks, yeah, Edmure looks pretty lordly here, even after his imprisonment. And it also reminds me of another line from Catelyn way back when we're just starting to get into Jamie's head before we get his chapters uh, during his own imprisonment and what he still retains of his pride, pride and stature, where Catelyn thinks his unwashed hair fell to his shoulders in ropes and tangles. The clothes were rotting on his body. His face was pale and wasted. And even so, the power and the beauty of the man were still apparent. Hmm. That's a really great comparison, especially as we kind of close in on this loop of, you know, Brienne's chapter ending with her choosing sword. And of course, him actually swearing the vows and choosing the sword and bringing it right back to Cat 7 in Clash. I mean... Jamie is that. a changed man. Yeah, but it's hard to tell people and just be like, yo, I've changed. <laughs> when you're over here threatening the family. and Yeah, I mean, he doesn't people. really have a good uh, presence, right, to go again. He needs better PR, maybe. I mean, it's hard. And I think that's something that we discussed a lot last episode with Don Willie, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the way that he's going to get things done is by leaning into a lot of what the Lannister strategy has been a lot of this time, right? Which is, like, intimidate. And I mean, that's a strategy for a lot of people in general. Mm -hmm. Edmure had waited most of the day to start the changeover, and in the confusion of everything, no one realized the blackfish, Brendan Tully, was gone until the next morning. Jamie now gazes out at the river, thinking the blackfish is likely ten leagues downstream. Damn, can he, like, really swim ten leagues? But anyway... (laughs) Regardless, there's this line that I wanted to call out. I just thought it was kind of cute and fun where they think if Rediger or you or any of their men heard a splash, they would put it down to a turtle or a trout. And it is in fact a trout because that's the sigil of House Tully for Brendan Tully. But also I just thought it was kind of funny because of the turtles. I was like, oh, is it an Estermont joke? And I don't think it is. I think George R. R. Martin just really likes turtles, as we all know. So I just like this line. Turtles or trouts? Love it. Emin Frey is whining about Jamie finding Brendan, and Jamie says he'll be found, but he doesn't necessarily think he's correct in saying so. He had sent Adam Arbrand and Dermot of the Rainwood out to investigate the riversides and considered sending Piper in Vance, although they would likely help Brendan rather than Jamie. Emin is worried that Brendan will take his castle back, but Jamie's left him with a garrison of 200, and Jamie says he doubts the Blackfish will be coming back. But, I mean... Jamie's smarter than that in his internal dialogue. You know, he says, he thinks to himself, he knows that, you know, the Blackfish means to continue the fight. And it could be at the head of a bunch of outlaws. Jenna carries Emin off before he throws yet another hissy fit. And Jamie then questions Edmure once more, poking for more information. 
Edmure waxes about his father, as they are currently in Hoster Tully's solar. This was my father's solar, said Tully. He ruled the Riverlands from here. Wisely and well, he liked to sit beside that window. The light was good there, and whenever he looked up from his work, he could see the river. When his eyes were tired, he would have Cat read to him. Littlefinger and I built a castle out of wooden blocks once, there beside the door. You will never know how sick it makes me to see you in this room, Kingslayer. You will never know how much I despise you. He was wrong about that. I've been despised by better men than you, Ednir. Jamie called for a guard. Take his lordship back to his tower and see that he's fed. The Lord of Riverrun went silently. In the morning, the plan was to send Edmir west. Sir Forley Prester would command 100 men and 20 good knights. Maybe double that, Jamie thinks. I just like that in this scene, you know, a lot of the insults that Jamie's loving at Edmir feel very much like the kinds of insults that Jamie was probably on the receiving end of many times before in terms of being like, I don't know, better men than you have said stuff like that to me, Jamie, or better men than you have beaten me. Things like that. While thinking of that, I'm suddenly remembering again something that we had discussed before as, as Brendan Blackfish escapes. And it kind of reminds me again of some of those parallels between the way that people saw the Blackfish as a legend and one of those older heroes, right? And and Barristan Selmy and how Barristan Selmy, right, just made his own escape. And everyone's like, shit, we lost we lost Barristan Selmy? And now they're like, damn it, we lost the Blackfish? And same energy. It's kind of like the one thing they never seem to get, right? Like, why why do these rebellions keep living on? What are we missing? The humanity of it all, purely. <laughs> the heroes, the figureheads, right? Yeah. Why Robert was so useful. But... What's yeah. also useful is this map of the Trident that they've got out against the desk, trying to figure out where Brynden would go. Then they're interrupted by Sybil Spicer and Boo. Queen Jane Westerling. <laughs> Woo. Woo. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> One of our queens. He doesn't think she looks dangerous, this girl who cost Rob Stark everything. He's like, I don't know, she's got narrow hips, small breasts, willowy, she's pretty enough for a child. We, okay, George R. R. Martin, we get it, you're a boobs guy, whatever, brown doe eyes, <laughs> chestnut curls, and she's, he's like, I don't know, she's probably no more than 15 or 16, and not a girl to lose a kingdom for, Jamie thinks, which, I don't know, gives me the same vibes as the idea of what happened in Robert's Rebellion. Even though Robert's Rebellion was not built on a lie- it has totally big liana vibes right like we have that line as early as uttered one back in a game of thrones liana had only been 16 a child woman of surpassing loveliness um i mean that's 16 dude gray eyes dark hair flat chested long face slim body kevin lannister says in the epilogue in dance that she had a wild beauty but she was a kid you know Yeah. Same with Jane. She's still a kid, which is kind of, I guess, what makes this all the sadder, right? They're all kids. Well, I was just thinking as we were talking about this, about I mean, it's kind of funny that that Jamie's like criticizing Rob's love choices. I mean, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) true. Right. Who are you to judge, man? And also, you know, he's the guy who says we don't get to choose who we love, basically. So it's just funny to me. It's very, he, he looks at her and he, and obviously he he's looking at her on hindsight, right? Like, 
holy fuck, Rob. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you know, Rob lost everything for for this girl. But I mean, maybe he's got a little of that comparison to Cersei because he does that with all women. Do you know what I mean? He looks, he compares all women to Cersei. But again, he's starting to see that Cersei isn't the prize she seems to be by her outward appearance and yet he's still judging jane by what she looks like not maybe what rob felt about her that's a great call out because especially in this next passage right like we see how passionate jane is about rob even in the face of i mean this is kind of a big moment we're we're getting that reveal that jane's kind of a honeypot right that she was used as something to doom the young wolf, uh, and her mom was in on it. Her mom was totally fine with it. Jane's face is puffy, and she has a scab on her forehead, and we get this passage between her, Jamie, and her mother. What happened there? He asked her. The girl turned her head away. It is nothing, insisted her mother, a stern-faced woman in a gown of green velvet. A necklace of golden seashells looped about her long, thin neck. She would not give up the little crown the rebel gave her, and when I tried to take it from her head, the willful child fought me. It was mine! Jane sobbed. You had no right! Rob had it made for me! I loved him! Hmm. Aww. Really convincing, Eliana, thanks. Really can't sad now. Being sarcastic or not. No, I'm being <laughs> real. I'm very sad. It is. It is sad. Yeah. yeah. Her crown. And, you know... Jane was in it. Something about that necklace of golden seashells looped about her long, thin neck. Why is he staring at that neck, ladies? Yep. <laughs> that kind of stood out to me. I was like, hmm, golden seashells. And essentially mm -hmm. a chain about her neck. For hands of gold. Oh. Yeah. I get it now. Give yeah. me a second. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm behind. <laughs> not not in the recording, just in my head. <laughs> the usual, oh no. Jamie steps between Sybil, though, and Jane before Sybil can smack her daughter. Good. And warns her that he won't be taking any of that bullshit from her. He commands them to sit down and offers wine. The girl does not answer and the mother declines. Jamie apologizes for their loss and then just asks if Jane is carrying Rob's child and then Jane bursts out crying, attempting to leave the room, but the guard at the door seizes her. Sybil answers she is not Jamie's lord father, bitter to make certain of that. Hey, speaking of lord fathers giving uh, abortificence to young girls, not just, you know, lady mothers, Sybil Spicer, but also uh, Hoster Tully. I thought this was a really interesting front of the chapter because not so different from Tywin in this regard, right? Selling your daughters for swords and glory, even if it's for the good guy's cause, still means you sold your kids off. And it kind of brings me back to like, oh, what's that guy's name? The redheaded dude, the free folk guy that sells his kids off to Selyse. Yeah, that guy, bootlicker. Anyways, this chapter starts with Edmir idolizing his father in the solar. Much like we see the Lannisters do, right? Tyrion in the same solar his father spent so much time in in King's Landing. Jaime as well now here. It's offset, though, with Jaime learning the truth of Jane Westerling, whose fate is not wholly dissimilar 
to Liza Tully, who Hoster had seated next to Jamie at every single dinner, right, when he visited Riverrun. The chapter, of course, is bookended with the truth, whether it's Jamie's subconscious messaging or if it's really his mother. Uh, spooky. The truth of what Tywin wanted for them and how far they really fell from this vision. I thought that Edmure idolizing his father in that solar was something interesting to add to this as we learn about Jane's fate. It's interesting that what you talked about with Liza and Hoster and aborting children or preventing pregnancies against their will happening in the same, maybe even in the same room, right, where they're having mm-hmm. this conversation, the same place where Hoster Tully would have plotted this. It makes me angry yeah. at all these parents who do these horrible things to their children like they're pawns. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's especially sad because Sybil Spicer, right, is, is reinflicting that. And that's something, it's this horrible thing that keeps happening, right? That women and girls have such little autonomy over their bodies, even their parents and other people in general feel like they can just take that control and inflict traumatic things onto them. Mm-hmm. That is kind of a tragedy of Jane, and I know she's probably going to be a main character in the prologue for The Winds of Winter from all the different pieces of juicy gossip we know. I'm sure the focus will be very much on her, because as we know, as we go on in the chapter, when she's to leave, she's to be very highly protected, and we will talk about that for sure. Jamie here, though, dismisses Jane. He turns back to his conversation with Sybil. He asks what, beyond the pardons that they've already been granted, they want from the Lannisters. She recants Tywin's promises. Worthy marriages for Jane and her sister, lords and heirs, not knights or younger sons. Jamie begins to think on the Westerling and Spicer history. Sybil was a Spicer from Upjumped Merchants. Her grandmother was some sort of half-mad witch from the East. So in the last Cersei chapter, we don't see a lot of this, but the second to last Cersei chapter, which comes right after Jamie 6, was Cersei 9, and she has a nightmare that reinforces Eliana's favorite prophecy. <sighs> <laughs> it's alright. <laughs> not as mad as like I was. I'm not like as against it as I was before. It's like there are things. I think you've you know, that's personal growth. You maybe are on a path to humanization as well, just like Jamie Lannister. I mean, I stand by all the things that I've said before regarding it in Cersei. <laughs> all the things that uh, the prophecy brings out in her were already inherent in her character, but whatever. Oh yeah, no, I mean, it was far too freaking late for Cersei. Um, <laughs> so she thinks about Maggie the Frog, of course, and she speaks with Tyena of Mir about it. She says, Tyrion's the Valonqar. Do you use that word in Mir? It's High Valyrian. It means little brother. She had asked Septa Serenella about the word after Malara had drowned. Tyena took her hand and stroked it. This was a hateful woman, old and sick and ugly. You were young and beautiful, full of life and pride. She lived in Lannisport, you said, so she would have known of the dwarf and how he killed your lady mother. This creature dared not strike you because of who you were, so she sought to wound you with her viper's tongue. I think that this nightmare and her waking, you know, to Tyena of Mir and Tyena comforting her, soothing her, saying, oh, she she sought to wound you with her viper's tongue, um, which we talked a little bit in our episode about Mir for patrons for the Free Cities about how Tyena might not have pure motives, right? 
She uh, might not actually be Team Cersei, after all, as we know her and her husband fled as soon as Cersei was captured and she got out. So interesting to think on and definitely something that's reflected in this chapter that it's coming up once more that Jamie's like, huh, yeah, that, that one time, that one chick, that's interesting. Wasn't she some sort of witch? Hmm. But yet Cersei's over there thinking, oh, she was. <laughs> I also feel like, side note, Tina Merriweather, while everything we we know that everything she's saying here is bullshit, we're just like, I don't know, there's all the other parts of the prophecy that came true, but Tina Merriweather, great person to have when you're going through a breakup, I think, you know, or someone like when, when someone wrongs you, great person to cheer you on. <laughs> like, yeah, totally, you're beautiful, you're amazing, they're all terrible. <sighs> Anyways, Jamie thinks about, once again, you know, in the context of the history of the Westerlings and the Spicers that the Westerlings were poor, which could explain very much uh, why they sought this marriage with the Spicers. And it's something that we've talked about a bit, not just uh, in those Free Cities episodes we were discussing, but also in the chapters analyzing Sons in the Veil, especially in some of those Winds of Winter chapters released uh, about Elaine. When it comes to this rising merchant class within the story, that hasn't been explored fully, but this whole new money idea is definitely something that's going on, and we're seeing a lot of the tensions between that new money versus the old money or blood and power, right? The the prestigious names rising in here, too. It's something that the phrase clearly have always sort of had a chip on their shoulder about, and we're seeing it here with the Spicers, who... I think it is significant that they're named that, right? Because it's quite interesting that in the Winds Elaine chapter where we learn that, oh, yeah, Harry the heir, he's got a couple of bastards already. And one of them, the mother, is named Saffron and comes from a spice merchant family. Like, I don't think you just get named Spicer for, like, no reason. I don't think it's the same family. I'm just saying, you know, a lot yeah. of people sell spices. I Food's great. Um <laughs> And it's likely going to be important as the free cities in general become more integrated in the story where they have that big merchant class. And of course, we have a very powerful merchant, Illyrio, who's the financial backer for Aegon's king-sedential campaign. And of course, we have mention of Littlefinger later when it comes to this new money story, right? And him not having like a lot of those connections in some way, considering how George R. R. Martin has said that he was very inspired by the Great Gatsby when developing Littlefinger. So, anyway. In an ordinary world where, you know, the Westerlings, especially because Civil Spicer, didn't commit some ultimate betrayal to climb the social ladder, the Westerlings would have actually been very lucky to marry younger highborn sons to their daughters. You know, something really struck me when thinking about Jane Westerling in Jamie's plot and comparing it kind of to Jane Heddle in Brienne's plot right in the last chapter. Jane Westerling is used as a honeypot for the Starks, but Jane Heddle kind of is used to seduce this broken faction that has oaths to Stark, Brienne and Jamie, to Stoneheart. And then you've got the other Jane who's being used and standing in for a Stark. Yep, All absolutely. All the north. God, Jane's get no rest. Yeah. There's a lot of... I don't know if it's supposed to be like a play, the counterpart to the Jon Snow, the Jane Jane Doe thing going on. That mm. actually wasn't a joke. That was serious this time. Um, no, I think you might have something there. Yeah. For now, though, Jamie's deliberating. He's like, all right, they'll have marriages. But he says Jane must wait two years before she weds so that no one suspects her to be pregnant with Rob's child. 
Interesting that you would say that, Jamie, considering the other marriage that has happened very recently within the same book when someone else's husband died. That was also a king. Very interesting that you would think such a thing. Sybil asks about her sons as well. Rollum is home, but Reynold, a knight, was captive at the twins. He was innocent and knew nothing of the plotting, and she thinks he's still captive. Jamie thinks, or dead. Walder Frey didn't know the Westerlings were honeypots either. Hmm. That does stick out this read through. Like, Walder Frey didn't know they were honeypots. Yeah, I think that's really, like, that really sticks out to me because that just goes to show how insidious, like, what Tywin's plotting was, right? He, like, kept all these cards so close and it shows in not telling the phrase about this plan of the Westerlings, he was really just trying to get Walder mad enough to break this huge taboo. He needed Walder's ego very bruised. Yeah, like, it's very manipulative shit. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. willing to let people die for it, right? Like Reynold. I mean, he doesn't give a shit about Reynold. No. No. They're just tools. I mean, it's the same thought process, right? Like, who cares about whether she has a baby she wants or not? And who cares if she loses her son? And, of course, they're not even highborn, so I should care even less about them. That's true. Tywin does think like that. And, I mean, it's sad that you see the parents thinking that way about their kids, too, right? Like, I mean, you have Sybil not telling her daughter what's going on and i mean her son also what's going on because now her her son's dead um but she doesn't know that rick and i'll find that out in a moment but it also reminds me you know of another daughter who wasn't told a lot of their parents plotting and ended up being a pawn but she was like i don't want to be a pawn she's like i'm going to make problems arian martell hmm <laughs> you know I, I see your Arianne Martell, and I'm going to bring another one to you. How about a Sansa Stark? Hmm. But not yet. Soon, though. She, too, will be like, I will. I would like to start problems. <laughs> that girl is a problem. Theme song of the century for the War of the Queens. That song? Uh, it's called Problem by Natalia Kills. Hmm. I recommend it. Uh, not right now, obviously, but, you know. <laughs> At some point in my life, yeah. It's it's on my Jessica Jones playlist. Actually, it might be oh, on my Arya playlist, too. I digress. <laughs> so Jamie promises he will try to make some inquiries and pay the ransom for Reynold, if, of course, he can. And Sybil then pushes, and she's like, well, Tywin promised a joyful match for him, too. That's right. A Joy Hill match. Jerrion's bastard daughter. Jamie's like, the marriage has to wait because, you know, she's young. And Sybil gets kind of persnickety because she's like, wait, my son marrying a bastard? Jamie gets persnickety right back. He's like, my cousin marrying a scheming turncloak bitch is son. Uh, and says, Joy deserves far better as well than being in your family. Jamie would have happily strangled that woman with her seashell necklace. Here it comes. Joy was a sweet child, albeit a lonely one. Her father had been Jamie's favorite uncle. Your daughter is worth ten of you, my lady. You'll leave with Edmure and Sir Forley on the morrow. Until then, you would do well to stay out of my sight. He shouted for a guardsman, and Lady Sybil went off with her lips pressed primly together. Jamie had to wonder how much Lord Gawain knew about his wife's scheming. How much do we men ever know? I don't know. Open your eyes once in a while. <laughs> I'm just sorry. Did I say that? Um, well, lot to unpack in that passage. Like, 
the seashell necklace, again, the golden seashell necklace that he would love to strangle Sybil Spicer Westerling's throat with. Interesting. And also uh, the projecting there with the wife scheming and feeling bad for Gowan. Like, oh, okay, this is just like with Amory. This is just like the last couple of visits. He is very much projecting. Absolutely. The comparisons to Cersei here are obvious, right? Like, he claims to not see her scheming, but he's not, like you pointed out, Chloe, he's not looking, right? Like, he's not seeing what's in front of his face that, you know, she's there's plotting going on, that she was deceiving him, and that you would have to open your eyes and actually, like, be aware of the person in front of you. And Jamie's been living in denial about, like, what Cersei is capable of and what she does. And that would mean he would have to face also, like, how she manipulates him. And Mm. that's the bigger piece, right? Like, if I admit that she does this to other people, then, oh my, yeah, she does it to me too. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it kind of, the rest of this chapter kind of bears out the idea that Jamie's projecting here, considering that, I mean, everything else in the chapter is showing is that turns out the people who knew all of the different plots that are going on and in a lot of this book were Tywin Lannister, person who (laughs) made entire plot that we are currently unraveling and dealing with the aftermath of here. Also, Littlefinger, who knows a lot, whereas many people here don't know about his schemes, but he's got a lot of schemes. And he's also just like disappeared. He's just up and left. I mean, they all know. They're like, oh, yeah, he's over in the Vale, you know, ruling in his wife's said. And clearly Liza didn't know anything. Clearly, <laughs> because... Woman. She's... I mean, now she's dead, so she can't, but... I love that they really are just that unsuspecting of him. And I think it is something Jamie has to unravel here, right? Like, with all these preconceptions and notions of class and what he's used to in this hierarchy, he's something that we'll probably talk about till the cows come home, that he is going to just, like, ignore some of these class conceptions that he has. And everybody that ignores, especially when it comes to, like, Littlefinger, people that look down on him, they uh, seem to be the ones that are kind of getting screwed by him when they turn their backs. I mean, that's pretty much everyone. Yeah, except for Sansa. She's not gonna let him. She's gonna get his ass. She's gonna whoop his ass. I can't wait. Well, she's the only one he's even slightly revealed himself to. Yeah. True. Which I find kind of fascinating. So is that his own conceit that he doesn't take her seriously? What? Yep. <laughs> yep. Idiot. He's so stupid. I hate his stupid pointy fucking beard. Anyways. <laughs> uh, stupid mint breath with his stupid green eyes. <laughs> so Edmir and the Westerlings eventually depart. They now have 400 men. Jamie doubled the escort for further protections. Forley Prester's at the head. His pinched nose, bald pate, grizzled brown beard makes him look kind of not knightly. Jamie warns him, hey, the Blackfish might show up and try to free Edmir. Forley's like, nah, no way. He says he has too many outriders and scouts that are screening them, and he has his best bowmen as well. With 10 men guarding Tully day and night, he feels safe, and if... Brynden shows up, they'll loose their bows at Edmure, he says. Suckers. I mean, I've watched the Fast and Furious franchise, so... Oh, I went on the I ride at Universal, so... Yeah. I understand it, yeah. I, I... <laughs> the ride at Universal taught me that, too. Forley Prester doesn't know anything about action flicks. 
Jamie does advise him that he should put the same amount of guard on Jane Westerling, which is probably a smart call. Jamie had to canter past the Westerlings as he rode down the column on his way back to Riverrun. Lord Gowan nodded gravely as he passed, but Lady Sybil looked through him with eyes like chips of ice. Jane never saw him at all. The widow rode with downcast eyes huddled beneath a hooded cloak. Underneath its heavy folds, her clothes were finely made, but torn. She ripped them herself as a mark of mourning, Jamie realized. That could not have pleased her mother. He found himself wondering if Circe would ever... If Circe would tear her gown, if she should ever hear that he was dead. Oh, dude, Mm. if you have to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's funny is that he's saying that now, but it's not that he, like, wants specifically that. Right? Like, he... He thinks he wants it, but as we get to the chapter's end, he gets basically that in letter form, and he says no. He knows he has to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that he thinks that here because the Lady Sybil looking through him with chips of ice. I mean, that's how everyone else saw Cersei in the first book, as someone who would look at them with a cold Ice Queen sort of demeanor, and then we found out, oh no. She's a raging fire on the inside, but yeah, if you have to ask, then maybe not. And we know that, I mean, Cersei plays the part of mourning every now and then, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part, the point here to an extent, like, yeah, that contrast, because I mean, Cersei did start this entire book mourning, so did Jamie, And she's also masqueraded as mourning before when uh, Robert died, but would she truly grieve for him in that way that she would tear her clothes and i don't know so angsty yeah (laughs) i feel like jamie's sort of like a guy in the throes of you know obviously a really ugly breakup where you're like you know does she miss me does she think of me at all yeah i'm not sure if cersei knows that they've broken up i think cersei thinks that they're (laughs) on a break jamie's like we broke up (laughs) right they're not in the same headspace over the end of their relationship for sure they have bad communication. They've just been relying on like being twins as their communication the whole time. Turns out you have to, you know, do more than share DNA to be in a relationship. Actually, you probably shouldn't do that in general. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's typically considered the bad sign. <laughs> <sighs> so instead of heading to River Run, where Jamie should be destined for, he decides to go check across the Tumblestone to work with Edwin Frey on bringing those prisoners from the twins down to them. He finds Edwin and Walder Rivers arguing heatedly in their pavilion. Walder greets him coolly, and Edwin accuses him immediately, saying that Ryman's blood, his father, is on Jamie's hands, as after Jamie sent him away, Ryman was hanged with all of his party two leagues south of Fairmarket. It seems to be outlaws, but they're not sure if it's Thoros, Dondarian, or maybe even the Stoneheart woman. Jamie frowned. No one will miss Ryman, but the outlaws are growing bolder if they're straight up just hanging the heir to the twins in daylight. Yes, how many men Ryman took, and Walter tells him and adds that it's almost like they knew exactly how many men hmm. would be returning to the twins at the exact time. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. I don't know how that's happening. <laughs> Edwin thinks his brother, Black Walder, had something to do with this, though. But Walder Rivers says he's being crazy. He's like, Black Walder's at Seaguard. And Jamie interrupts their grieving to remind them that they need to transfer the prisoners from the twins to the crown. And Walder Rivers is like, um, they're very valuable. 
And Nedbin says that his grandfather will expect recompense for these prisoners. And Jamie thinks, you know, he'll have it as soon as his hand grows back. I get it. It's it's a joke. <laughs> you know, something in this that I love is that Jamie straight up thinks he's like, I'm interrupting their grieving, jokingly, you know. And it reminds me of Kevin when... Uh, and Jenna, I guess, when each of his family members have been asking him, you know, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And he's like, about what? <laughs> They're like, you know, your dad died? Like, the man that you're supposed to idolize forever? Oh, him? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he's out here judging, and it's like, weren't you, Cersei, and everybody in the world just, like, arguing two days ago about your dad? Settle down, Jamie. It's definitely a similar vibe, especially because... You know, he's pointing out, he's like, I don't know, they don't seem like they're really mourning or grieving, especially compared to Jane Westerling. She's still here doing, like, public displays of mourning. Yeah. I mean, it's been a few months, right? And they're like, it's been, like, a minute. And they're like, I don't know, I guess my dad's dead, but let's think about the consequences for me! Yeah, I love the line that we have where he says, we all have expectations, okay? <laughs> <laughs> The Lannister brothers have great comebacks, you know. They got good, good witty witticisms. Um, the wooden, what is it? Wooden witticisms of Jamie Lannister. And then he asks if Reynold Westerling is among the captives. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember him? Yeah. Yeah, he's Rip. dead. He is dead. Walder Rivers tells him the sad tale about it that. Reynold was in the yard when they put the dire wolf down. He was trying to free Grey Wind, and he took an arrow to the shoulder. I know, right? He takes he takes an arrow to the shoulder, takes one to the gut, and yet he still held out long enough just to drag himself into the river. Edwin claims that he left a trail of blood, which is how they found him, and Jamie's like, Did you see the body? And he said, Oh, we found a thousand corpses down there. Once they spent a few days in the river, they all look much the same. And Jamie responds, I've heard the same is true of hanged men. Which, that's totally just hardcore Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing. There's nothing else to pin on that. It makes me mad at Sybil again, right? Like, Reynold is there, like, trying to free Rob's wolf and do the right thing, and he doesn't even know his own mother has set him up for this horror show. Yeah, Sybil's doing the same thing that Tywin is, right? She's just letting people go on not knowing the plan so that they're, like, fully bought in. And, like, good on Reynold. You know, he was there. He's like, I'm going to risk my life to free the wolf because I... F all A, because Greywind's a good boy, but also <laughs> because... I mean, he's like, well, I've seen what these direwolves can do. It's clearly a strategic advantage to have the wolf out. That's probably why they looked him locked him up in the first place, but... Yeah. Sybil Spicer didn't deserve her children, or her children didn't deserve her also, in a way, whichever way you want to put it. Yeah, there are definitely some bad parents in Westeros, but she's <laughs> up there on that list. Like, yeah. Yep, she is very high on that list, much higher than probably what most people have it on their list, because they just don't think about it, but pretty shitty. I'm with you on that one. The next morning, the camp is empty. No phrase, just flies, dung, and the gallows beside the temple stone. Diamond wants to know what they're doing with this camp and all the siege equipment, proposing that they take it to Raven Tree and use it there. <laughs> we'll have a new siege. Davin kills me. He's like, he's the kid that wakes up 9 a.m. morning after the party. He's like, where are we partying again today, man? And you're just like, dude, I'm too old to party two days in a row. And then you want to go back to bed after drinking water and ibuprofen, right? Like, 
Davin's out there like, I want to do some war. And Jamie's like, I'm taking your keys. You must chill. I have done too many war. I am not doing more war. (laughs) Absolutely. It's true, you know? I mean, like, Davin, when Davin was a kid, Jamie was doing stuff as a knight. He was out there. And now? (laughs) I I get the sense that he's not really interested in, like, all the the talking part of what Jamie has to do now. He's like, you know, no, oh, let's take this stuff. There's still, uh, using your metaphor, there's still beer in the keg. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely David right now, though. He's like, what if we just got more? Let's party well, again. And by party, I mean fight. Siege. <laughs> the siege is kind of like a tailgate, right? It's basically a tailgate. And yep. Jamie, like, let's not sell the guy short like jamie does give him something he's like okay how about this you go set everything on fire you know start with the gallows <laughs> just out. like a tailgate yeah like light yeah. the couch on fire and i'll go deal with lord titus all alone and davin is so happy he's like oh you know maybe titus wants single combat he's an old gray man that would be unfair cousin and jamie's like yeah an old gray man with two hands like that's all he can think and there's something that stuck out to me that very specifically he thinks about him being an old gray man with two hands. Yes, that's more than his one. But also it kind of goes with his dream later, right? Like in his dreams, he has had very different hand signals going on and he finally sees himself as one handed later. And it reminds me of him, beautiful and golden Jamie Lannister, right? Versus this old gray man. George kind of seems to be playing with this imagery, this description about Titus from Davin. It's kind of reflecting on Jamie, old and gray, a done man. Davin shows up to party, but Jamie was busy acquiring trauma and killing kings in his teenage years. And now he has to go deal with someone named Titus, which is, of course, the same name as the foolish Grand Lion hanging above all their plots, right? Tywin's driving factor, Titus Lannister. So all these kind of factors, I, I think they're important into Jamie's decision moving forward. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting when we get there. He fights Sir Illyn, though, for three straight hours that night, and he is a much better knight, only dying, quote-unquote, twice to Illyn Payne, joking with him that he may be as good as Peck if he keeps it up. (laughs) Illyn laughs, you know, in his Illyn way as well. They've apparently become drinking buddies. You know, if you can really call it that, if they, when they drink some of Hoster's Good red wine together. Ilan does never interrupt or disagree or talk. He just drinks and listens, which Jamie's like, this is the best drinking partner ever. And I'm like, that's weird. I don't know that that's why I drink with people. But anyway. Um, <laughs> that's called a servant, Jamie. Jamie says he should have the tongues torn out of all of his friends and Cersei as well. Hmm. Yeah, the passage is actually a little intense. He fills their cups and says, and from my kin as well. A silent Cersei would be sweet, though I'd miss her tongue when we kissed. He drank. The wine was a deep red, sweet and heavy. It warmed him going down. I can't remember when we first began to kiss. It was innocent at first, till it wasn't. Well, that is how it mostly starts. He finished the wine and set his cup aside. Tyrion once told me most whores will not kiss you. They'll fuck you blind, he said, but you'll never feel their lips on yours. Do you think my sister kisses Kettleblack? Sir Illyn did not answer. He goes on. He says he can't slay his own sworn brother, but he could geld him and send him to the wall like Lucamore the Lusty. But his brothers probably wouldn't like that. And he says that brothers are dangerous. He compares Aegon the Unworthy and Terence Toyne, whose brothers did their best to kill Aegon the Unworthy after Terence Toyne was killed by him. 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And um, there's this line of, their best was not quite good enough, thanks to the Dragon Knight, but it was not for want of trying. It's written down in the White Book. All of it. Save what to do with Cersei. What Jamie needs is a relationship column in a magazine. Oh my god. It kind of feels like the White Book is the only book he's ever read. Aww. Kristen, can you answer this question for me? Do you know? I don't know if Jamie's ever read another book. He doesn't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Not with you? No, not at all. (laughs) God damn it. I mean, it's hard to bring a book, I guess, on the road. Yes, it is hard to bring, especially, you know, given how they're traveling, right? Can't even, he doesn't even have an iPad where you could carry, like, lots of books in your Kindle app or something. No, Um, he only talks of the white book. But, I mean, that's, it's one of the few things he holds up on a pedestal. Right. Well, and here it's like he's looking for answers and he has no answers from the white book, right? There's no answer is what he's coming across from the white book to figure out this problem. All right. He knows what the answer is. He just doesn't want to say it out loud, which is why it's so lucky he has a friend with him who can't talk. <laughs> Convenient. Convenient. I mean, Ilan tells him, right? He draws a finger across his throat to indicate, you know, you should probably just kill her, dude. Jamie says no, right? That would hurt Tommen, and it would be awful, and it would be good for the Tyrells if Cersei were dead. But the answer is staring them in the face. Yes, and Jamie tells Ilan at his ugly smile, which Eliana would argue is not an ugly smile. Jamie tells him that he talks too much because, of course, he is tired of hearing the silence that confirms what he has to do. I mean, he's not going to find any answers in the White Book from any of the other Kingsguard, right? Because... I mean, not many of them had the same problem as him. There are no men like me. (laughs) And no one's going to write that down in the white book either. (laughs) Yeah, no one's going to write down in the white book, like, listen to all these women that I fucked that I wasn't supposed to because literally the whole prerequisite to having the job that leads to me writing in this book is that I not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it probably wouldn't work out to write about fucking your sister, huh? Mm -hmm. Or anyone, to be honest. It's usually frowned upon as a Lord Commander. Also, not Lord Commander, as a, as a Kingsguard, but also the killing of brothers, right? Yeah. Big John, your sworn brothers, Big John at the Wall Vibes, or like the other way around when they're killing John. Something else that has those same vibes is the next day Sir Dermot of the Rainwood returns, complaining of giant wolves led by a savage she-wolf driving them out of the wood. Jamie suggests a ring of fire, but inwardly wonders if the beast that Dermot speaks of is the same beast that mauled Joffrey at the crossroads. <laughs> I found that Ring of Fire suggestion interesting, especially because it's coming from Jamie, who is a Lord Commander, and it reminded me of the old bear's Ring of Fire up in the north at the beginning of A Storm of Swords to protect them from uh, some other some other terrifying force. And, you know, the old bear, also a Lord Commander. Yeah, I was uh, thinking that Ring of Fire definitely reminds me of the Free Folk fires absolutely being lit and uh, them following those fires. Something else that it reminds me of is like in the night, all these river lords possibly plus the Brotherhood coming together with like their secret plans. Like it's kind of more likely that there's a great Riverlands conspiracy theory over a great Northern conspiracy theory. I'm just saying. That's my spicy take, that it's probably more likely that the Riverlands has a conspiracy going on. be interesting. 
Yeah, I'm intrigued. You should write a seven-part series on that, Chloe. You know what, (laughs) Kristen, you should do is you should (laughs) fuck right off into the next passage. (laughs) (laughs) Dermot takes fresh men and horses to continue his search the next morning, and the Trident Lords come to ask Jamie for leave to go to their lands. Lord Piper asks about the captives, and Jamie promises that they will be brought back. Carol Vance lingers, telling Jamie he must go to Raven Tree next to clear the air between Jonas and Titus. Strongboar leaves to fight the outlaws, claiming he wants the hound's head. Or Don Darian. Jamie says, you know what, go for it, regarding the hound, but bring Beric back alive. Because he plans to make an example. A thousand people must see him die, or he won't stay dead. Interesting. Beardless John Betley goes with Strongboar. Jamie refuses to question the men in the Riverlord garrison. They swear they know nothing of Brynden's plans, specifically because of his promise to Edmure. Jenna calls this chivalrous and says strength is needed over chivalry here. Jamie thinks that she should ask Edmure how chivalrous Jamie is. He thinks about the trebuchet again. He's like, really like, I did good threatening the baby with the trebuchet. <laughs> I was as mean as I could be, okay? Uh... <laughs> Somehow, he did not think the maesters were like to confuse him with Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight when they wrote their histories. Still, he felt curiously content. The war was all but won. Dragonstone had fallen, and Storm's End would soon enough, he could not doubt, and Stannis was welcome to the Wall. The Northmen would love him no more than the Stormlords had. If Roose Bolton didn't destroy him, Winter would. This is definitely some heavy foreshadowing, right? Because this is literally what's happening to Stannis right now, to Storm's End, all of it. Yeah, definitely. I was I was just sort of thinking about how um, Jamie wants Jamie in the trebuchet. Just this little moment where he's like, you know, he he's thinking Jenna doesn't think I'm mean enough, but yet in the the previous chapter or whatever, when he's there talking about it, you know, he's embarrassed. He has like this. Mm. He has this dichotomy or this. He has this problem with. The threat he's made right like he feels badly about it and yet he wants jenna to think he was as ruthless as tywin it's this you know it's his internal conflict again like should i be like tywin should i not be like tywin who do i want to be yeah it's kind of like he suddenly turned jenna into a sort of surrogate for tywin's approval ever since jenna was like i don't know you're not Tywin's son, it's Tyrion, and he's just trying to prove things to Jenna in a way, or in his head he is, but he doesn't really say anything to her. He's just like, you should have seen me, only internally, you should have seen me with the trebuchet line. Really great. Well done, me. I mean, I think he really just, uh, he has a lot of the same issue, right, that Tyrion has. Like, he just wants Mm. someone to be proud of him. You know, for doing some sort of thing, and he doesn't know who it needs to be right for. Should it be right in the eyes of Tywin? Is he trying to please Jenna? He doesn't know. He doesn't remember his mother. The last memory he has of his mother is pretty much of her catching him and Cersei, fooling around as children. Like, that's one of the biggest memories he has. Like, uh, Jamie's just looking around for a pat on the back, and no one's given it to him for 30-something years. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when you put it like that, it is really interesting because it goes to show how damaging once more Tywin's parenting has been. Like, they're 30 years old or, or more. Well, Tyrion is probably 30 about now. He's like 27 or so, right, when the series started. And yeah, they're just like 
still even now looking for that sort of as you said validation and approval and it goes to show like you know people should be like commended every now and then for things validated even when they're older throughout their lives tell the people that you love that you love them um (laughs) i will not be saying that because i don't love jamie lannister (laughs) yeah you've never cried once never not not for jamie legally no i have not thank you for understanding aliana (laughs) You know, but speaking of things about Jamie Lannister, you know, he is right in a lot of his predictions. He he ends up being right that Storm's End will fall soon enough. It's just not in the way that anyone thought because, you know, wow, wild card. Aegon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's also interesting that, you know, Jamie is thinking about this passage and also his legacy because Jamie at the end of A Feast for Crows, you can see that there is quite an arc here too, right? He's kind of disabused of these fantasies and notions that he had before he set out into the Riverlands and had to start actually doing the work and start making the difficult choices when he was like, you know, what if people called me Golden Hand the Just? And, you know, that he was thinking in chapter three of this very same book. And there's so many boys and men in this entire story, turns out, who just are constantly like, man, me. Next, Aemon the Dragonite. They love Aemon the Dragonite. Boys love Aemon the Dragonite for some reason. And it in within the story, probably, I don't know, fans too, whatever. It relates to Jamie that we saw in A Storm of Swords, who is also by then disillusioned with the songs and the stories and finding life wasn't like them. And then he let himself hope for a second. He's like, I could be like that. And I do think it's interesting that he thinks of Aemon here because... You know, many people have already discussed this. There's quite a bit in their legacies that there are some similarities, right? I mean, they didn't... Aemon probably didn't father bastards, but, like, in the rumors that are told, like, on his king's queen. So it's pretty different. But Aemon's story was just so full of gallantry. He was, like, full of all that, like, fulfilling that masculine ideal of being, like, a great fighter and knight, fighting, like, heroics of survival and strength, whereas Jamie's legacy right now is just so sullied by that one single act and you know all the other things of uh, that come with being a Lannister in the part where he threw a boy out the window but no one really knows that uh, but mostly that one act uh, despite Aegon the Fourth's attempts to dirty Aemon's name and like like see Aemon's legacy stayed pretty intact whereas you know Jamie's legacy is also staying intact right he's alive and it's really hard for him to undo the reputation that he has and Make up for his sins, which, you know, Brienne is realizing now the hard way as she's like, no, no, he's changed. I know he's changed. And they're like, I don't think he has. We're going to kill you now uh, because of Jamie Lannister. Yeah. And to be fair with that idea of Aemon the Dragon Knight, something that I think is still an issue for Jamie is like, I mean, the basic fundamentals of why Aemon is this big hero is, of course, because Nerys loved him, right? And he stood up for Nerys in the face of a big drunken lecher abuser is kind of the romance behind it. And I think that's what Jamie saw himself as for so long, right? Like he saw him as I'm standing up for Cersei. I'm trying to protect her. And yes, Cersei did need protection from a lot of like the marital rape she experienced and abuse. But Jamie wasn't doing it again for the right reasons. He gets a chance to finally do it publicly, right? Yeah. defend his sister and the queen and he's like but what if we threw this in the fire (laughs) so for a second though here he's like hmm I could go home that'd be nice go be with my king aka his son he wonders if Tommen would rather have a chair 
or a father and thinks, you know, Tommy probably wouldn't believe him anyway, and Cersei's probably filling his head with lies, and I, I think, I don't know, Tommy would like cats. They're less disappointing than either the pointy chair that doesn't let him do anything, or a father. <laughs> Fathers let you down. Yeah, fathers are honestly like a serving of uh, of beets for Tommen. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't know. At least, you know, he has mostly, I guess, good memories of his father and like, I guess, Joffrey, maybe Marcella, who knows? Yeah, and of course, Jamie is thinking more about Tommen and Cersei and he's like, holy shit, I need to get him out of there before he becomes Joffrey 2.0. And he starts kind of drafting a new small council, a dream team, right? He's like, well, if Cersei was put aside, and this like went zero to hundred real quick. All of a sudden he's like, well, if we could get Cersei put aside, whoa. Uh, <laughs> he thinks Kevin would be a great hand if he'd come back or in the case that he didn't, Roland Craycall, Forley Prester. He even thinks he could throw a bone to Mathis Rowan or Peter Baelish. Again, no, Jamie. He thinks Littlefinger was as amiable as he was clever, but too lowborn to threaten any of the great lords with no swords of his own. The perfect hand. Of course, like five pages ago, Littlefinger was just planning out a way to get a ton of swords and for Sansa to be a queen. Just putting that out there, Jamie, you lovable idiot. And and again, it's that passage just spells out the classism that you guys have been talking about and we talked about earlier, right? This this repeating thread, particularly with Littlefinger, right? He's so lowborn, like, we don't even have to worry about him. He he wouldn't even possibly aspire to be more because the, you know, the classicism inherent in mm-hmm. Westerosi society says he can't be. And so he's not even going to bother and we can totally trust him. <laughs> and they're all guilty of this conceit. I mean... Jamie is really struggling with that a lot, but, you know, Cersei, Ned lo- overlooked Littlefinger for the same reasons, right? Like, they see ambition, but, you know, of course, they're never really gonna get there, so, meh, I don't need to worry about him. And it feels like a really strong part of Jamie's plot, learning that, like, yes, money is sometimes power, but power is not always money. Yeah, and I mean, in Jamie's defense, it is something that... George R. R. Martin has kind of written in there, right? Like, even Ned trusts Littlefinger, even though he's like, this guy kind of sucks. The more that he hangs out with him, he's like, I kind of hate this guy. He's always nagging me. Nagging Ned. That's a funny (laughs) line of words. Man, I regret never saying that during our first POV uh, read-through. But George has this quote in an interview that he did back then where he feels that Littlefinger was the most changed character between the book and the television show, or not the most, but one of the most different, because he said there's a line in a recent episode of the show where he's not even present, but two people are talking about him, and someone says, well, no one trusts Littlefinger, and Littlefinger has no friends. And that's true of television show Littlefinger, but it's certainly not true of book Littlefinger. Book Littlefinger, in the book, everybody trusts him. Everybody trusts him because he seems powerless, and he's very friendly and he's very helpful. He helps Ned Stark when he comes to town. He helps Tyrion. You know, he helps the Lannisters. He's always ready to help to raise money. He helps Robert. Robert depends on him to finance all of his banquets and tournaments and his other follies because Littlefinger can always raise money. So he's everybody's friend. But of course, there's the Machiavellian thing. He's, you know, everybody trusts him. Everybody depends on him. He's not a threat. He's just this helpful, funny guy who you can call upon to do whatever you want and to raise money, and he ingratiates himself with people and rises higher and higher as a result. 
So I, I thought that was interesting. That is a really different portrayal when you think about it. And that's why he's like making all these little machinations and he's like, Sansa, you're going to be queen of everything. Don't you worry, girl. I'll only make you pay a price for me. (laughs) (laughs) Here's where you can send your taxes, Sansa, into my dick. Yeah, it's (laughs) awful. He's literally the worst. God, just kill him. Get a fucking job. Get a job. Well, (laughs) the Tully garrison is granted leave the next day. No armor, no swords, three days worth of food and clothing, and a solemn oath to never take arms against Lord Emmon or House Lannister. If you're fortunate, one in ten may keep that vow, Lady Jenna said. Good, I'd sooner face nine men than ten. The tenth might have been the one who would have killed me. The other nine will kill you just as quick. Better that than die in bed, or on the privy. Interesting exchange. It's another example, I think, of Jamie again projecting... Right, because he's like, sure, let's have them take oaths to not take arms against Ebon or House Lannister, because inside he's like, I mean, I took an oath to Catelyn Stark, and I have done a fantastic job at keeping it. It has been very hard for me, but I have done it. He's, so he's like, clearly everyone else can do it, too. <laughs> Silly man. Desmond Grell and Robin Ryger choose to take the black. They're allowed their armor and arms and are escorted to Maidenpool by Raph the Sweetling and men below him. Jamie threatens to make sure they get the prisoners to Maidenpool unharmed. You know, I, I mean, like, I, I think this is interesting that you've actually bolded some of this here because, like, I really never noticed Desmond Grell and Robert Ryger before. I know others have, right? But, like, they aren't at the wall by dance. So I wonder what's in store for them. Grell and Ryger, like, I don't know. Maidenpool's not too far from the Vale either. It's that or something interesting going on when they get to the Wall. I don't know. Well, so they're escorted with Raph the Sweetling, too. Yeah, but he abandons them. Yeah, um, so they're abandoned, so that means Raph didn't go all the way there probably i mean because or he just boarded a ship from there right to go to well, i mean they right. were only Bravos. he was only yeah told to bring them to maidenpool then i guess he hands them off to someone else right because mm. maidenpool would be able to get them on a ship i guess to the wall and yeah Raph was like all right i did my job peace out i think we're gonna have to see them again for sure that's a great thought huh yeah I mean, it's interesting, right? Jamie's just here delegating things and trusting things will get done. I mean, it does get done by Raph, but also here with the odes. Like, I think that it's also signaling a change in Jamie's character, right? That he's becoming more trusting. As he becomes more optimistic about himself, he's becoming more optimistic about others. It's not the worst thing. I mean, it's probably not the best thing for him <laughs> in this situation right now in the Riverlands, but it's right. not the worst thing in general for people. When it comes to the world, when you're not living in Westeros and in the middle of a war. Right. (laughs) Three days later, Emin gives a three-hour-long TED Talk to the people of Riverrun of his expectations of them, all in the light rain. Tom of Seven Streams is listening from a door, and Jamie notices that. Tom makes a joke to him that Emin should be a singer, as this is longer than a marcher ballad, and he's not taking any long breaths. Jamie laughs. He asks if Tom would make a song of it and says, don't play it where Aunt Jenna can hear. He then surveys Tom, small, garbed in green breeches and tunic, 
Brown patches in the phrase and holes, and a long, sharp nose, big, loose smile, thin, brown, unwashed hair. Jamie asks why he didn't leave with Ryman's men, and Tom tells him he plans to pass the winter here in River Run, nice and snug. Hmm. He hoped to win River Run, as White Smile Watt went with Sir Forley to the Westerlands. Plus, he knows twice as many body songs as Watt. Yeah. Important. It's a big job qualification. Jamie says he should work on playing for Jenna, as she's the boss here, and Tom asks why not Jamie. Jamie explains he must go back to the king, and Tom apologizes that he never played him anything other than the reigns of Castamere. He introduces himself to Jamie, who tells him to sing sweetly, and off he fucks to his great big dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have Jamie Lannister here giving his locations and plans away to the spy, while telling him that, you know, what would be really great for you in your career as a singer, but also as a spy... Putting you right there next to Jenna and Evan, especially as they hatch all of their plans, which is interesting, especially when you talk about it in the context of what you've been saying, Kristen, right, about uh, this classism and Jamie kind of overlooking the threats that someone could have. And it seems like he's kind of doing that here with Thomas Seven Strings. He's like, I don't know. He's just a singer. What could he what harm could he possibly do? Just like with Cersei, right? Who just finished with the torture of the blue bard. Blue bard. And we talked a little bit about him last episode and how uh, that was a problem for Cersei as well. But I've really noticed, like, he's always there getting all the good information. Thomas Evans. Yikes. Yikes, 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 yikes. Not good. Like, literally. And Jamie was really close. He was like, wait, why didn't you go with Ryman? He's like, haha, no reason. Yeah, he does. He's like, ah, no reason. But it it is interesting, right? Because you don't think about it until the blue bard scene and here with Thomas Seven Strings. But a lot of singers are in very much placed in that position to hear a lot of sensitive information, right? There's that scene with I guess he's a fool and not a singer, but Butterbumps. Oh yeah, Butterbumps. He's hearing everything that's going on between Olena and Sansa at the beginning of A Storm of Swords, and I mean, being a singer. Yeah, you have Marillion in this book. Yeah. it's Well, I mean, you're just privy to, like, yeah, Marillion was privy to crazy shit, too. But, I mean, if you don't make your moves, something bad happens. And because of that classism, nobody believes you anyway. So, and I mean, that's kind of a skill, right? I mean, I don't know. But being able to sing and listen at the same time seems hard. Yeah. Red Wedding 2.0. It's happening. I, I never cared because it just felt like, yeah, sure, that sounds right. But now rereading this, I'm like, oh, holy shit, Red Wedding 2.0 is going to happen. I've always cared. I've like, <laughs> cared, but not that much. I'm like, we'll see it when it happens. I did care about. Yeah, exactly. My capacity yeah, for but caring But the warning is signs are all over this book, for sure. Yeah, especially in Jamie's chapters, which makes me pretty, pretty positive that Brienne and Jamie are still going to be around the Riverlands during this time. I agree. Red or Wedding. Red the red, redder wedding, <laughs> redder wedding, the reddest wedding, the scarlet wedding. So much red. He dreams he's in the sept of Baylor, standing vigil over Tywin. A woman emerges from the shadows, who he thinks looks like Cersei, but it's not Cersei. The woman's in grey, a silent sister, a hood and veil hiding her face, but he sees candlelight in her green eyes. Sister, he said, "What would you have of me?" His last word echoed up and down the sept. Me, 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 me. 
I really wanted to do that. Thanks for letting me have that. <laughs> I wasn't sure what direction you were going to take it, to be honest. Very literal. Me. Me, 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 me. Me, me. Me, 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 me. <laughs> like Beaker in, uh... Yeah, Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> she says she's not his sister. Not your sister. And asks if he's forgotten her. He knows her now, but it's been so long. So before we launch into this, I think we should have fun for a second because we're going to get deep, right? This is going to go deep. This is a deep dream. Uh, We got to plug our friend Silas, Gods of Terror. He has a theory that Joanna Lannister is alive, has a glass candle, and is basically Quaithe. I don't 100% agree with all of this theory. It sounds like tinfoil because it is, but it relies on some really interesting analysis that we're about to go through. The veil and hood concealing Joanna's features the candlelight in her eyes. And there's text in A World of Ice and Fire, like how the queen didn't approve of Ares turning her ladies into his whores from Ares too. Briella dismisses Joanna from her service, which ventures into Joanna being quaith from there in the theory. And again, I don't really fully believe it, but the analysis has some really interesting points on timing and some of these smaller points. And I know we discuss this like every episode now, and I'm not sure if I'm a Tyrion Targaryener or a Jamie Cersei, really. Uh, I lean towards Tyrion Targaryen if I had to choose, right? Like, this is it. This is the moment. If you don't choose, you, I don't know, die on the spot, which sounds like it because it's like really with for a Tyrion question. Thanks. But Tyrion Targaryen, I guess, makes more sense if there was a five-year gap. I wonder if like the removal of that gap is the big thing because there's so much here that just keeps getting said, right? That makes me go, George, what are you trying to say? Are you are you winking at us? Are you saying something? I don't know. And it feels like he's like making the details messy on purpose, right? To screw with us for us to actually care about it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just don't think there's time for it in the main story, but interesting. And there's there's this little bit of imagery though with Joanna that that has a really good amount of cloak symbolism, right? The imagery of her cloaked and veiled and It feels definitely like foreshadowing for Stoneheart, but I also would add with what we do know about Castamere, what we've recently discussed with Tywin sending some of the women, the Reigns, to the Silent Sisters and the punishment he likely was involved in influencing with tearing out the lace serpent Sorala's tongue in Duskendale. So just interesting imagery with uh, these silenced women and Joanna showing up where looking like a silent woman. Especially in the context of Jamie being like, hmm, what if my sister was also silent? <laughs> I mean, I agree with Chloe that that no one is ever going to tell us whether, you know, that there, there's not going to be some big reveal where it's like, oh, yes, this happened. I think we will always be arguing about this. Maybe in an interview yeah. someday he'll say it. Maybe he'll just be like, oh, yeah, I intended it. I didn't really have enough time to play with it, but the people that figured it out were geniuses. <laughs> I don't know if he'll ever do that. No, I doubt he, it. Even now, he's just like, he reveals some things where he's like, I can't believe people are asking me, like, what word Brienne said. <laughs> he's like, that shouldn't even be a theory. Like, he's like, I thought I wrote that. Anyway, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, there's some things where he, even that now, he's still like a little cagey and he'll ask reporters, right, in that Rolling Stone interview a couple years ago, he was like, who killed Joffrey? And he's not saying it like as though it's a theory, right? He's like saying, I mean, it's something that he feels that he gave the answer to, but right. yeah. no outright saying. 
Will you forget your own Lord Father too? I wonder if you ever knew him, truly. Her eyes were green, her hair spun gold. He could not tell how old she was, 15 he thought, or 50. She climbed the steps to stand above the beer. He could never abide being laughed at. That was the thing he hated most. Who are you? He had to hear her say it. The question is, who are you? This is a dream. Is it? She smiled sadly. Count your hands, child. One, one hand clasped tight about around the sword hilt. Only one. In my dreams, I always have two hands. He raised his right arm and stared uncomprehending at the ugliness of his stump. We all dream of things we cannot have. Tywin dreamed that his son would be a great knight, that his daughter would be a queen. He dreamed they would be so strong and brave and beautiful that no one would ever laugh at them. I am a knight, he told her, and, and Cersei's a queen. A tear rolled down her cheek. The woman raised her hood again and turned her back on him. Jamie called after her, but already she was moving away, her skirt whispering lullabies as it brushed along the floor. Don't leave me, he wanted to call, but of course she'd left them long ago. Oh, this dream. Well, obviously, we're not the first people to talk about it and and talk about how, you know, it's about Jamie's identity and all those kinds of things. And But I feel like there's this, the, this question where she's saying to him, these are the things that Tywin dreamed of. And he's like, but we, we did achieve those dreams. I am a knight. She is a queen. But what do you do with that? The, these things you attain, the power you have. What is legacy? What do you leave behind? In the end... Tywin was a rotting corpse, and his children were whispered about and mocked, and they were all laughed at. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, at this moment, Cersei, is she still a queen? I mean, it's debatable, right? Like, she's kind of locked up at the very moment this dream is happening, and he's like, I am a knight. And she's like, hmm, but Tywin dreamed that his son would be a great knight. Are you a great knight? <laughs> and I, I think that's part of what's going on here, right? Yeah, and I, th I think there's a lot to argue about, like, what Tywin's view of a knight was, right? Hmm. When when you really focus on that, Cersei is currently laying on a cold tile floor with a straw pallet after kind of uh, hooking up with some men for security, right? Against uh, her daughter-in-law's reign, which this reign included them skipping around, picking daisies, and talking about cooties. I know I've been very sympathetic for Cersei, but... She is giving Allison to run for her money, right? Like with the whole ruining people's lives, trafficking people to be experimented on or sold into slavery by people she callously raised to government and helped further boost. Like not, not a great look, right? And yeah, Jamie's trying his best, but he's not being a knight like his father would want. Like looking back at Jamie in Storm, I think this especially, he's coming to terms with his mother's absence and death. And the mother, the entire aspect of the mother, he had originally replaced it with Cersei in his mind. And it feels like he's projecting this disappointment that he feels in himself into the memory of Joanna in this dream. This is all he remembers of her, a hooded, misty figure that looks oddly like Cersei and is fluctuating between young and old. And it's a huge step. His subconscious asks the question he's really trying to ask himself, who are you? And I think when we look at Brienne's fever dream that she recently had, which has major Ned Stark vibes, uh, and Cersei's 
dream that she had as well in Cersei 9, you get some interesting things. Like Brienne's fever dream alongside this is she dreams of being at Harrenhal and fighting the bear. She begs for her sword. The dead are watching her, Renly, Nibble, Dick, Crab, Catelyn, Shagwell, Biter. She screams for Jamie, and in her next dream, she's back at the Whispers, fighting Clarence Crab. He turns into Biter, she doesn't have her sword, and she cries out for her sword while thinking of failing Jamie. In the next dream, she's lying in a boat and of shadows. Uh, hooded men in leather surround her. The willows are whispering she's a freak. Some are whispering she's a beauty. And then her next dream, she dreams of Evenfall when she was a younger woman, dreaming she wants a sword, not a rose. She's rejected by her suitor, Ronnet Coddington, but as he leaves, his griffins turn into lions, and once more she tries to scream Jamie's name, but her tongue's fallen out. So flipping over to Cersei's dream, Cersei is being awakened by Septas on and off throughout Cersei 10 against Brienne being unable to stay asleep in and out of consciousness while she is, you know, half face bitten off and all that good stuff. Cersei 9 juxtaposed here is Cersei dreaming she's in the black cells, naked, chained to the wall instead of the blue bard. Her nipples are torn off by the imp, bleeding freely, and she begs him not to harm her children. He tells her she'll see them crowned and that she will see them die and then sucks on her boobs and she wakes up and it hurts really bad. So there are obvious parallels with those dreams here and they can be looked at against Jamie's dream, right? There's loneliness, searching for something that isn't there, losing something, whether it's Brienne's tongue, Cersei's teats, or Jamie's hand. I'm going to quickly plug here, as you brought up, Brienne dreams briefly of uh, losing her tongue and of course there's this weird undergoing <laughs> underlying like sort of thing going on in this chapter as well where at first Jamie sees his mother as a silent sister and then also talking about ripping out Cersei's tongue and there is an essay by Melanie Lot 7 is the name that she's chosen by herself her name is in fact Melanie uh, about silence women in a song of ice and fire uh analyzing that if that's something that you in are interested in but yeah, I think you've gotten to the heart of a lot of what's going on here in Jamie's storyline, right? He's at this like crossroads again where, you know, he's resigned himself to try and be better and thinks he is, but again, falling back on a lot of those same Lannister, as we said before, same Lannister strategies. So, I mean, who are you? I mean, like, he still thinks he's a Lannister, he still thinks he's a Kingsguard, but there's always like an entire world of other things that he could be and he hasn't truly gotten to explore that yet and maybe maybe eventually one day we'll see what happens with the rest of all that or getting to define his own knighthood well and tywin tywin didn't dream that jamie would find love or be happy or that you know cersei would be happy they were they were tools and they got to be those things but Tywin is not the kind of father who's going to care about personal fulfillment. But in your own heart, you you want to be more than just a thing, you know? And and I, I feel like Jamie's really suffering with that. Like, who am I? Who will love me? Right? Like, he's still reaching out for that, like, the approval, whether it's coming from his mother or Cersei or Tywin or Jenna or even Brienne, right? Like, someone to say, you know, you are more than these things that people think of you as yeah but he's he's really struggling with defining who he's gonna be and 
and he's going to have to make some choices. Yeah, and it's hard because he's still like trying to pattern himself in many. I mean, it, how can you be something that you don't know, right? Exists yet? Like he's trying to pattern himself off of all these other stories and heroes, in a way, being like, "Well, I'm never going to be able to do that." All those people in the white book that he reads about too right like he brings it up over and over again there's no answers in the white book the white book should tell me or his personal captain america that that amen that that everyone loves and reveres this story that's probably a lot of its myth but these these ideas he's searching for a way to define himself and to be more than a knight in song yeah a knight in a song or his parents dreams yeah Yes. Either of those. those. I mean, in a way, you know, his parents, Tywin, had his own mythologies that he wanted his kids to live up to. And and trying to force them into that left them completely inept to actually do it. Yeah. How do you be Jamie now, you know, at this year's old? First time you ever get a chance and now you get to be Jamie. What do you do? He's not even defining himself by Cersei anymore. No. Good. <laughs> <laughs> There was a break that needed to happen. Jesus. It took you long yeah. enough. From that dream, and as Jamie's trying to figure out who are you, he wakes, shivering. The room is cold, the fire has died, the window blown open. He crosses to fix the shutters, but as a barefoot touches something cold. Ugh, God, the worst. <laughs> Sorry. It's such a terrible feeling when you've just woken up and you don't really know what's going on. And you're like, oh my God. Or he step on something. Anyway, first he thinks it's blood. Interesting. <laughs> Dark. Uh, but it's so cold. It turns out it's actually snow drifting in. The yard is covered in white. The merlins in snow. And he can see his breath. Winter is here. And I don't know. It just makes me think, especially again. Supposed to be the same book as dance. You know who else's blood is cold as snow right now? Or probably very soon. Jon Snow. Thoughts on... In my head. That's it. <laughs> Well, that makes sense, though. That is, uh, right now his blood is definitely running very cold. I mean, it could have still been blood, you know? It just had to have been someone else's not very fresh blood. I guess then it would be dry. I don't know. I don't touch cold blood. Or snow blood. Except for in food. (laughs) That's different. (laughs) He knows that this means the chance of the harvest is done, and that the fields are all doomed. He wonders what Tywin would have done to feed the rum, but Tywin is dead. Daddy cannot solve this problem, and he's literally why we have this problem. (laughs) Agreed. He is. He is absolutely why we have this problem. And going back to kind of what we've been speaking about with Jamie and all these people that are kind of surrounding him on his family's council uh, that are guilty as sin for trusting men like Tywin and Littlefinger who are willing to do whatever it takes to keep their status, right? Exploiting and exerting their power or gaining power through resources. And it reminds me of uh, a lot of you know I'm from Michigan and why are the people in Flint still being subjected to poisoned city water? Well, because there are people with a large amount of money that have their own clean water, and then they want to regulate and tax that part of their life further to make more money and exploit these people. Like, it's about resources. It's a resource war. 
right? The rich are hoarders. Tywin wanted his legacy in the fastest way possible to right his father's wrongs at the expense of others to maintain the resources and having an upper hand on the entire game. He hoarded and he thought himself a king. And now Littlefinger is playing that same game of resources and upcharging lords for it, which... Sidebar, Sansa's gonna have to confiscate that supply chain flow, right? Like, she is gonna have to just ruin that supply chain. Uh, but maybe there was some good in Tywin, but him being nice to his wife a couple times doesn't fix the man he was. He was so powerful a man and continued to use that power against those he wanted to silence, and he spent that much time scheming to save his asshole to perform atrocities like the Red Wedding, to let the mountain loose with the purpose of maiming instead of spending that energy on infrastructure and building things for the future. Like, Aegon V was the exception, not the rule. I get that as far as rulers go in Jaehaerys, but they all found a way to leverage it, right? Like, their royal relations are strained, as we see across the nations, but they still usher in some sort of peace. You can't ask for a peace while destroying and exploiting a people. That is just not how Westeros works. And his asshole is what killed him. Sorry, I really needed to get that in. No, please. <laughs> <laughs> Speak, girl. I was just thinking, um, I was thinking about this because the mythos of Tywin from when he was hand for the Mad King was that by all accounts, he, as the saying goes, he kept the trains running on time, that people were fed and infrastructure projects happened and roads were built. And he gets a lot of credit for that, especially given how Ares was Ares, right? Like he, the Mad King, and he was unstable, I guess is the word I'm looking for. But with his own monster, his own grandson on the throne, he neglects all these things. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Hmm. Too complacent, right? Acedia, greed leeches off of Acedia, and a knight to Tywin is a monster, right? We come back to that question of what is a knight to Tywin to the man that let Gregor Clegane go in and just pulverize people in the sack of King's Landing, knowing what he was going to do, right? Like, he fully knew that's what he was going to do. And I think... Jamie not being a monster in that manner and Jamie somehow staying as true to himself as he can be, right, in all of this. <laughs> I think that's really important because being raised by someone like Tywin who will stop at nothing to exploit others to get what they want, that's dangerous. And we see how it affects Cersei. We see a lot of the effects in Tyrion. Not great. Yeah, and I mean, you have quite an interesting moment where Jamie does, to an extent, tell Tywin, I will not be your monster, right? Yeah. Where he's like, I'm not going to go where you want me to go. And that's part of him re-exerting that. But now that that approval's gone, he he already like rejected it. And I think that's a difficult thing, right? That A Song of Ice and Fire is exploring part of it is about that relationship people have with their parents when both when they're there and when they're gone and i don't know it's interesting that jamie fulfilled a lot of it but it's only towards the end right he had that broken relationship with tywin and that's maybe part of why he's craving it because for a long time he was like i don't know doing all right doing pretty well and by most like of tywin's standards and as you said he was so effective in many things yet and that's kind of what Jamie's trying to strive for in that effectiveness here in the Riverlands while striking that balance of not going full Reigns of Castamere. And he hasn't fully examined yet 
he's starting to, right? Because he was like, man, Tywin's being judged in the seven hells or by anything on the other side. That's probably not very good for him. So he kind of knows that Tywin wasn't doing great. But so why is he still aspiring to that same model? I don't know. But by now, but by morning, though, what we do know is that the snow is ankle deep. The drifts have piled up around the godswood trees. There are squires, stable boys, and pages. They're all warring with snowballs, laughing. And Jamie remembers, ah, snowballs. I remember snowballs. And flinging them at Tyrion when he would waddle by, or even slipping one down Cersei's gown. But you know, he was like, you know, that, that was a fun two-handed activity I used to do as a child. Now I only have one hand. I think he could still make snowballs with one hand. In fact, maybe he would actually be better because his hand would be cold and therefore not... Well, is part of the effectiveness of making a snowball <laughs> melting it a little bit so that you get a little bit of that ice. Anyways, sorry. Snowball mechanics. And snow means many things throughout this series, but I do think it's interesting that even for the Lannisters, or for Jamie, right? It's being used to convey a very similar thing that Snow does for Sansa and like Arya's storyline, especially Sansa's, uh, showing that time of innocence and nostalgia, thinking all the way back to like the snowball fights that people used to have. Yeah, it circles or back. Or they used to have. It reminds me of that line from Sansa that uh, I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done. You know, there are, we could have put Jamie by a lot of POVs. Could have been by Sansa even too, but that that rings true here for Jamie, right? From the beginning of the chapter and thinking about Titus and how he has to go deal with Titus and how now Titus is an old gray man and so's Jamie. He's getting gray. Snow's falling. Colors leaving the world. Gold's out, baby. He's like in his mid thirties. He's an old tired man, Eliana. You know we just got to no, put him out not. back. Just got to put him out back. Take him out to the. No. Pasture. 30s? This 30, 30s are the new 20s. I don't have that problem. <laughs> so a knock comes at the door and Pack opens it to Maester Vyman, River Run's old Maester, pale as snow, apologizing for taking the liberty of opening a letter that has come for Jamie. Jamie does not give a fuck about this federal offense. He's like, I know it's winter, it's the Citadel, I get it. But Vyman's like, no, sir, not the Citadel. And we get this passage. Jamie read it in the window seat, bathed in the light of that cold white morning. Kyburn's words were terse and to the point. Cersei's fevered and fervent. Come at once, she said. Help me. Save me. I need you now as I've ever needed you before. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come at once. Vyman was hovering by the door, waiting, and Jamie sensed that Peck was watching, too. Does my lord wish to answer? The maester asked. <laughs> After a long silence, a snowflake landed on the letter. As it melted, the ink began to blur. Jamie rolled the parchment up again, as tight as one hand would allow, and handed it to Peck. No, he said. Put this in the fire. Oh, I love this part. <laughs> so I I wrote something about this like on my Tumblr blog like 400 years ago. I love this this thing that we learned from from George's editor who talks about the threefold strategy. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I urge you to go out and Google it, or maybe Eliana and Chloe will link it for you here. <laughs> um, 
But she talks about how when George wants you to get something as a reader, he tells you three times, right? And he's, he, at first it's very subtle and then it's blatant and then he just spells it out for you, right? And it's like, you, this is really important. You have to get this. And if you use the rule of three and go back and look for any and any major turning point in the in the series and it'll be there but i see jamie saying no to cersei three times and this was the most blatant of them all but the subtle one going back all the way to storm he says no to cersei when she tries to seduce him and she's trying to convince him to leave the king's guard and you know she's we can be together and you'll leave the king's guard and everything will be great and he's like no i'm not doing that I'm going to stay in the King's Guard. I mean to to do this thing you tasked me with. You made me Lord Commander. Now let me do it. And then, then she comes back to him and she says, Okay, well now I need you to be my hand. You have to be my hand, Jamie. You can't refuse me and leave me. She, he's like, No, I'm, I'm not meant to rule. No, I'm not doing it. And then finally, to me, this is him spelling it out, right? Like she's asking him to come. And she says it three times. I love you. I love you. I love you. Come to King's Landing. Save me from my fate. Only you can do this for me. And he's burned the letter. No, I'm not going. And I feel like this is like the break, permanent break between them. I mean, yes, they will meet again. Yes, they are going to see each other. But I think Jamie is truly done being ruled by Cersei, doing anything for her love. I think he's, this is where he says, no. I, I'm making a choice here that I'm doing something else. It definitely feels like the permanent break and the rule of three is really prominent, even if we go back to Cersei's last chapter, right, as she's actually writing it. And it's really an interesting perspective, considering we had Jamie earlier on in the chapter thinking, would Cersei grieve for me? Would she rip her skirts? Because this is the closest thing we've had to Cersei ripping her skirts for Jamie, right? We had this back and forth. As you command, I love you thrice. Thrice she had to reach him. He will come. I know he will. He must. Jamie's my only hope. She thinks that three times means something very important. She's like, if I tell him I love you three times, I know he'll come. But she didn't use those words before to keep him from leaving. It's too late. It's like, what if Luke Skywalker, right, and Obi-Wan... But especially Luke, because he's the twin. I was like, what if I didn't answer this help me message? I was like, let's just throw this in the fire. <laughs> that would be terrible, actually. Um, but yeah, absolutely with all of that. And here's where you finally get that turning point. And it's like, how much like will we see Jamie change now that he's finally decided to divorce himself figuratively, but in a way kind of literally of Cersei? It also, like, I think what's so funny about this letter, and you know, you were quoting uh, what happened in the Cersei chapter where Kyburn's like, thrice? Really? <laughs> and I think that's why Vibin is also so awkward about it when he came in the room. He's like, I'm definitely sure I saw something that I shouldn't have. I thought I was logged into my account <laughs> and that this DM was for me and it was not. <laughs> and he's like, wow, maybe those rumors are true because I mean, like, I mean, obviously, siblings and twins love each other, but to say it three times, that's like a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, Jamie's like, 
put it in the fire. And I mean, it just ends on that. I'm like, was it burnt? I feel like if we didn't see it burnt, like, should we take the same idea as if you don't see the body, then it's still alive in Aeswath? Because think about other things that are out there that haven't been burnt, like the will, Rob Stark's will. I don't know. Yeah, that's the thing that I wonder. Like, what? I mean, there was Peck. He gave it to Peck, so it probably, like, actually happened, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know. Did it? And then, even so, Vyman already saw it. I'm just like, you know, Don really reminded us last episode that, you know, just as Jamie thinks throughout these chapters, like, a lot of these men were loyal to someone else just, like, a minute before. Actually, I don't know, like, an hour before. Whatever. And now, like, the... Obviously, we know that the maesters have their preferences, right? Like, again, this would have come alongside chapters where Barbary Dustin's all like, you know, it's interesting, Theon. <laughs> I don't trust maesters. And then a moment ago where Pycelle's like, yeah, I mean, I guess I serve the Citadel, but think of all the things that I've done for House Lannister. And I don't know. It, like, was, was the message kept? The maester saw it, and it's just like... It's definitely been seen. A lot of people have seen it. You can't just like un hit unsend or unread anymore, Jamie. All right, this is a new day, and Vibin saw your DMs and he took screenshots. <laughs> Jamie locked his Twitter account. He soft blocked Cersei. That is literally what happened tonight. <laughs> yeah, Vibin's like, I don't know. I've got proof. I got way back machine. Oh my god. <laughs> Do you think Jamie cares though? Like, that's sort of my my sort of wondering at this point. I'm mm. like, he just seems so tired of... He sort of flirts in this book with like, what if I told Tom and I was his dad? Would that be bad? <laughs> you know? Like, do I care that Vyman read my, my love note from Cersei? <laughs> you know? I mean, obviously, he only talks to Ilan Payne who can't tell anyone, but... But in the same vein, he seems like a guy who's kind of tired of, like, pretending that it didn't happen. I mean, they all just heard his breakup, right? Like, yeah. it's not even, what do they have to tell? They can't tell people he's dating his sister because he'd just be like, I just dumped her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's interesting, right? To say that, I haven't thought of, like, does Jamie even care if people know? Because he has been telling Cersei, he's like, what if we just told everyone? And she's yeah. like, we can't do that, then I'd stop being queen. But now, obviously, Jamie's like, I don't give a fuck if she's, like, queen or not. I'm not gonna go save her. Well, you know, <laughs> that's something else, too, right? Like, so not only that, it's not that they know that he's fucking her. It's that they know he's not fucking her now. And that's a pretty big piece mm, of information. Like, when he leaves, what if Maester Vyman is like, hey, Tom of Seven Streams, did you know that we could drive a further wedge between the crown? Absolutely. And, like... Is this an act of treason on Jamie's part? No. <laughs> I mean, like, as a Kingsguard, like, this is, like, kind of his job. But, I mean, it's not the first time Jamie hasn't done his job, though. I mean, it's not to protect her. He learned that from his very first gig with the Kingsguard. That is very true. His job is not to protect Cersei. That's true. He wanted to change things. And I wonder, you know, maybe that'll be part of that legacy of his, right? Like, obviously, people feel that the Valonqar prophecy might be about Jamie and Cersei, and it likely is, so that's part of it. But this could be part of it as well, if that gets out. Like, oh, remember that time that Kingsguard was supposed to protect 
the family and the queen than he didn't, which also actually is something that he feels a lot of guilt for, right? When Pretty. it comes to Rayella. Yeah, tremendous. Yeah, because it wasn't his choice, but this time it's his choice. Yeah. Well, lots to chew on. Holy crap. I don't know how we're going to end Jamie next week. I don't feel like we can. I feel like we need two more books. Yeah, I mean, we're at such an interesting and pivotal point for him. Kristen, what do you think? I'm still mad, as I was when I first cracked open Dance in whatever, 2011, when there was only one Jamie chapter. (laughs) Like, what? Are you kidding me? One one Jamie chapter. You've got to be kidding me. That's true. Uh, yeah. So that's painful. Yeah, I, you know, that there's, he's got all this unfinished business in the Riverlands and I, I, hmm. <laughs> and he has to meet Cersei again. I, I'm with you on the, the, I mean, everyone is, right? Like, do people not think that Jamie isn't the Valonqar? I yeah, I mean, I know Eliana and I have discussed how, like, it would be funny if it was just, like, Tyrion, because Cersei's just so dumb, and she just really, like, somehow, like, she was kind of right the whole time, but kind of not, but at the same hilarious. time, it's, yeah. like, it, it's so right there, because it feels subtle, you know, having Jamie be lulls. it. Well, and, and Cersei outright naming Tyrion the Valonqar, to me, means that, you know, it just can't be, but who knows? I've been wrong before. <laughs> I mean, that in and of itself is what makes it so incomprehensible that Cersei being right? Yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I, I also wonder, I I mean, it's likely Jamie. It's something that had there not been so many years between books, people wouldn't have thought or accepted so much, right? It would have felt more like a wow. Yeah, absolutely. If we hadn't been chewing on it for nine let's not talk about it too many years it's not nine years if you think about it if you go from the time feast was released oh my god yeah let's not oh god let's not let's not do the math it hurts it's painful math it's very painful math although in some ways i'm like so i've pined for it for so long that i'm like come out the other end into this like weird zen place where i'm like yeah it will happen and i will love it yeah, I'm not like upset about it anymore. You know, I-, I was upset like, oh, George, give it to us. And I'll always say, George, give it to us. But yes. uh, I- I- it's too much. I-, I don't have the energy for it. There are other books that you can enjoy while you wait. And they will only enhance your reading experience of Martin's pieces, especially if you're looking at older stories that he's definitely utilized to kind of jump off of or other sci-fi pieces. So I don't know. I think there's just a lot of media to go around that you can consume and not get too tired and sad in the zone waiting for the winds of winter. I'm not going to lie, though. I will absolutely find the first Jamie chapter in that book. (laughs) I mean, I've talked about this with people before, right? Like, are you just going to like open it and start at the beginning? Or are you going to be like, oh, my God, who's in here? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to start at the beginning. Yeah. And let the journey take me where it does. But I'm going to turn off, like, everything. Like, I, I, I'm I, taking vacation time, PTO. Yeah. I'm turning absolutely. all social media off. Girls Gone Canon is canceled until it's done. <laughs> um, oh, my God. I get... What do we even... What's our spoiler scope? I don't know. I don't know. 
We'll cross that bridge when we get there. What happens when, like... Like, burning bridges. (laughs) What happens when it gets announced and then we have three months to finish all the episodes? Oh, no, we're not... I don't know what we're gonna do. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll cross that bridge later. We got time. We got time. I'm not gonna think about it. Kristen, you're stressing me out. I'm not gonna think about it until it's announced. Kristen, you just stress me out. Why would you do this to me? I hope that book never comes out. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Don't hurt me. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not gonna hurry, but like that's something people ask, and the, the, they used to ask in the group. They don't ask it so much anymore. <laughs> they used to ask. That's so sad. <laughs> what will the rules be about spoilers? And I'm like, oh my god, we'll cross that bridge when we get to the book. <laughs> oh, god, Kristen, you have been so lovely tonight. You know that. <laughs> I'm just truly honored to be here and to talk about Jamie and. I've had a lot of fun. I enjoyed listening to you all talk about the books. And so it was a real treat. Thank you so much. Yeah, we haven't gotten to talk about, I guess, you know, every now and then when you and I meet up, we don't really talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, which I think is calming for me. (laughs) (laughs) um, So, you know, it was good to, to dive into this discussion with you with our people, human voices, and not just over low comments on Facebook. Agreed. It's been a good time. And, um, you know, I enjoy running into you in person and talking furniture with you every now and then. <laughs> yeah. I bought something. I'll tell you later. Oh, awesome. Good. Me next. Yeah, Run into me next. I know. <sighs> well, we'll be able to travel again soon, Chloe. I swear. I have faith that you you're know, on my list, I- girl. I'm coming for you. Right. <laughs> yes. And Worldcon 2021. Yes. Yes. Worldcon 2021. Well, Kristen, please let everyone know where they can find you on the internet, where you want to be found on the internet, I should say. <laughs> oh, I'm in the A Song of Ice and Fire Facebook group on Facebook. Um, if you aren't there, come join 66,000 of your closest friends and talk about the books. I am on Twitter if you want to watch me talk about politics at KRTMD. And I am, my pretty quiet Tumblr is also at KRTMD. It's a really dumb name. It was an accident, you know, and then it stuck. And then somebody once told me that they thought it stood for Karate Doctor. And I thought that was really funny. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, we have the Karate Doctor on our show. Wow. Wow. We should have been asking you more about Jamie's martial prowess. (laughs) You know, he has, uh, he's really good with a sword. <laughs> yeah, which I guess isn't karate. Well, you know, he's got quite that, that karate chop with that golden hand that he likes to smack everyone around with, so. <laughs> yeah, he's not using it to the full advantage that he could be. I've, uh, I've, I know how monk class works in Dungeons and Dragons. There's a lot of potential there. You're right. I have no clue. <laughs> Well, as always, thanks so much for listening in to our 95th episode of Song of Ice and Fire episode, Jamie 7. You can find us over on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or if you like the episode and want to chat with us about Jamie, send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course... Keep up with us, keep up with Jamie, and then soon after, Ari's Oakheart, by subscribing on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, 
Acast, Spotify, and recently someone told us we are also on Overcast, and that's an email we'll get to at some point. Yes. Hey, if you aren't into any of those, you can check out our Patreon. We have special content for our Stranger Tier patrons and above, $5 and up. They get a special episode every month. Right now, we are also covering our His Dark Materials material. Ha ha ha, say that twice. And we will be continuing our LaBelle Sauvage read through for Patreon members uh, every other month for the Stranger Tier. Otherwise, we will hopefully be doing another episode this month on A Song of Ice and Fire in July. That's patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And as always, thanks for listening. I've been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thank you so much to this week's other one of your hosts, Kristen. <laughs> Finally, we have another another one of the hosts. All right. Yay.